Good morning, family. It's good to see you. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, I'm reminded of David's words to Solomon when he charged Solomon. He said, And you, Solomon, to my son, know that the God of your father, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house. For the sanctuary, be strong and do it, Lord. I pray that this morning that you would do that, that the Spirit would indeed come and would search all hearts, and that you would provoke in us a desire to be careful and to do exactly what you have told us to do, and do it with a whole heart and with a willing mind, and that we would serve you in that capacity. So I pray that you would come and do a marvelous thing, that you would work in our body in such a way that, God, it is obvious that you are moving people and changing them and transforming them. Come to your spirit and do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing our study through the book of Jonah as a family together. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that Jonah is really a storied presentation of the gospel. That's what it is. It's a narrative that powerfully explains the gospel to us. It's a story of sin and grace. It's a story of desperation and deliverance. It's a story which painfully reveals that while we are great sinners, God is a great Savior. It's a story about how a God of, what I would say is a God of great expenditure, wildly and graciously pursues self-righteous and sinful fugitives like you and me. It's really remarkable in that way. And so what we find in this story is that God is making us aware not only of who we are, but of who he is. And this story of God's grace begins with Jonah's flight from God, which we saw last week. And last week, the theme there, the key theme was Jonah's disobedience against God. And uh, so if the theme was disobedience last week, then the theme this week is what disobedience leads to, namely desperation. And so the story continues with God going after Jonah by sending this great storm, which Blake just read about. Jonah, see, thought he was in the clear. And I think, I think it's fair to say that because God said to Jonah, go, and Jonah said, no. In fact, he decided to distance himself from God and his ways. And so what he does is he gets into a ship and he starts heading in the exact opposite direction that God told him to go. Well, God, in this part of the story, goes after Jonah. And Jonah is is on the boat and God sends this storm. And the storm tells us, I think, two things that we want to learn this morning about God and his ways. About God and his love for children. And I want to look at each of them this morning. The two things... That this storm teaches us about God and his pursuit of his children is this. It tells us about the relentlessness of God's ways and the mercy of God's ways. The relentlessness of God's ways and the mercy of God's ways. And in order for us to see, since this is a storing presentation of the gospel, in order for us to see the gospel in a brighter way, then we need to understand these two things about God. That when God pursues us, when he does that, he is both relentless and merciful. And so the storm reveals this first, the relentlessness of God's ways. Notice what happens here in verse 4. Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind. Now let's just stop there for a second. Um, There's this whole thing going on in this passage. It says, but God. There's this whole thing going on in the passage, but God, but Jonah, but God, but Jonah, but God, but Jonah. And you feel this tension throughout the entire text. And I love that. It's as if if God is just not going to give up on Jonah. No matter what Jonah does, no matter how many dumb decisions he makes, God, there's another but God. Isn't that great? That the but God doesn't stop? 
that God doesn't just wash his hands of Jonah and just leave him? What does God do? Is God, is God saying, Jonah is such a bad prophet, you know, he's running away from me, and, and so we're going to give up on Jonah, and Jonah's done, and I'm so glad to have him off the prophetic payroll. Glad to get rid of Jonah. He's a bad prophet. Is that what God does? No. What does he do? Verse 4, the Lord hurls a great wind upon the sea. This, this is not luck. This is not, this is not coincidence. The creator of the universe is creating a storm. The Hebrew phrase here actually means that God formed a storm in his hand and he threw it down on Jonah's boat. All right, he picked it up and he threw it down. And I I was just smiling to myself as I was thinking about this passage this week. I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen this way, but I just couldn't help but think, can you imagine if Jonah was sitting out there on his boat and God just created this storm and there must be other boats on the sea. And God's take this storm, and it's like 500 yards wide, and he just throws it on Jonah, and everybody else is on their yachts, just enjoying the nice sunshine, and Jonah is in a world of mess. And it may not happen that way, but sometimes we feel like that in life, don't we? We feel like, you know, you think to yourself, man, why is all this adversity raining down on my life? What did I do to deserve this? And and, and that guy in the other pew over there, man, his life is just smooth sailing. He's just enjoying life. Life is great for him. But for me, life's terrible. Well, you know what? Maybe God's trying to get a hold of you about something. And God can do that, can he? God can drop a storm right down on my slice of life if he wants to. Because there's something that he needs to talk to us about, and he will do that. And Jonah's learning that. Jonah's learning that the same God who can calm a storm is the same God who can create a storm, and he will create a storm because God is relentless in his pursuit of us. And so God hurls down this wind, verse 4, and there's a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. You know what? The text here means literally that the ship was in the process of breaking up. I just broken pieces flying off everywhere. Wood is breaking. The stern's probably messed up. Water's pouring in the boat. This is a desperate situation. The ship is literally absolutely destroying itself. It's falling apart. And, and it's so bad, in fact, that, this, that, that the sailors, it says, are afraid. Now, now, how bad does the storm have to be for a sailor to be afraid? That's their job. That's what they do. That's like a taxi driver being afraid of rush hour. That, that's like a that, that's like a uh, that's like a rodeo cowboy being afraid of the big horse. It just doesn't make any sense. These are sailors and they're afraid. But note this: when God does something, He does it right, and He does it loudly, and He's coming after Jonah. And one of the things that we learn here in this text is that, listen, running from God never elicits a quiet and subtle response from God. When we flee from God, when we distance ourselves from God and his ways, when we come to the conclusion that my way is actually better than God's way, when that happens, God never comes after us in quiet and subtle ways. The supreme example of this, of course, is Jesus. The incarnation where God actually becomes man and dwells among us. God, when when the incarnation happens, this is God's booming voice that God is coming after runners in a loud way. I mean, how much louder does it get than God becoming a man to rescue sinners? The storm, see, the storm tells us that God spares no expense in coming after Jonah, and Jesus in the incarnation tells us that God spares no expense in coming after wicked fugitives like you and me. See, you can do a study of world religions, and what you'll find is that Christianity is absolutely unique when it comes to this issue of the incarnation. Um, only in Christianity, listen, does God actually become one of his own in order to rescue one of his own. This is the incarnation. It's, it's a mystery. It's an amazing thing that God becomes man in order to rescue man. 
the lavishness of God's love, the greatness of God's love, the expenditure of God's love, to go that far and to that extent, and for man to stick his hand out and resist God and to say no to God when God has gone to that length in order to get man. I mean, how, how arrogant of man to do such a thing. And what we learn from all this is the great lengths that God has gone to rescue sinful fugitives like you and me. If the person of Jesus tells us anything, it tells us that God confronts human rebellion in a most dramatic way possible. Notice verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each one called out to his God. You know, this might be the saddest part of the passage. In many ways, you've got these guys calling out to their own gods. Just multiple gods and goddesses that they're crying out to. And and, and how often does this happen when people don't really have a god? They just have some sort of rearview mirror, on my mantle, bumper sticker, idle god thing. That they just look at like a trinket. And then hardship comes and they have no personal relationship with God. They don't have their own thing with God. And so they end up going through life leaning on somebody else's thing with God. And then trouble comes and they have no rock to stand on and they have no savior to lean on. They come to church and they want to get around people that actually have a thing with God in hopes that maybe they can ride the fuel of somebody else's relationship with God and it doesn't work. There's no standing place for them. And here's these sailors and each man is crying out to his own no God thing. His fake non God thing. And nothing happens. And so the story is so dramatic. These guys just start chucking the cargo off the ship. Now think about this. How bad did it have to get for them to start throwing the cargo off the ship? Anybody here into trucking? Jim, or Jim's here somewhere. Jim's into trucking. Now, can you imagine, think about this for a minute. Can you imagine that if you're, you're going down the road and, 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 the, and, the, and you're driving a truck and it's full of cargo and it starts raining and you're afraid that your truck is going to hit the ditch, so you actually start throwing all the cargo off the truck, how much trouble are you going to be in when you get back to the loading dock? You're, you're going to be in a world of trouble. And so this storm must have been pretty bad because these, these sailors must have been thinking at some level, okay, save my life or keep my job. You know? I mean, really, this is, this is somebody's cargo. This costs money. These are rich resources. Save my job, save my life, sorry, or keep my job. But they throw it off. This is how bad this storm is. They throw the cargo off. They lighten the ship. And, and this is so bad. Middle of verse 5. But Jonah, here's another but Jonah, okay? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. No, that's, that's, that's perplexing. How do you go down into the inner part of the ship and fall asleep in the midst of a storm like this. You know, and, and I think one of the lessons that we learned here is this, is that flight from God always leads downward. And it culminates not in a happy, spirited, joyful life. It culminates in loneliness, isolation, and sleep. One of the words that came to my mind was lethargy. Just complete lethargy. He's asleep to the world. And how many people today are just asleep to God and his kingdom? They're living asleep. They're living, but they're not really living. They're existing, but they're not really living. And they're just asleep to God. And this is what happens when we run from God. We don't know it, but we're asleep. It's like the proverbial frog in a kettle. You put a frog in a kettle and you slowly turn up the heat and if you turn it up ever so slowly the frog adjusts to the rising temperature and therefore refuses to jump out even though it can and he boils 
And this same thing happens to us. There's no telling where you'll end up if you run from God. Do you think Jonah ever thought that he would end up in the belly of a fish? And that's why adultery at 40 begins with watching desperate housewives at 20. You don't end up in bed with somebody else's spouse overnight. Many of you, I'm sure, I'm sure many of you never thought that you would be where you are today. And the reason is, is that you have been running from God. The longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back to God. And so what will you do about your disobedience to God? If you were on that ship, I mean, what would you be doing? What would you be doing? Did Jonah know that the storm was for him? He's down there. He's camped out. He's got his hands on his head. He's got his feet propped up. He's taking a nap, and he's oblivious to the fact that God has created a storm for him. And you just want to say, hey, Jonah, you see that white um, courtesy clue phone over there? It's ringing, and it's for you, and you need to pick it up. God is coming after you. God is trying to get your attention. Jonah's at the bottom of the ship, totally oblivious to this. And you're just, you're just so amazed at how Jonah can be so oblivious. What should Jonah have been doing? Jonah should have been down on his knees. Jonah should have been repenting. He should have said, God, I have, I have sinned against you. I have, this storm is, is definitely my fault. This whole thing is, is I've created this, in my, and I'm rebelling against you, and I'm not going your way, and I'm not doing what you've asked me to do, and I'm rejecting you, and I'm sticking my fist in your face, and I, I repent of that, God. I repent of that. But the longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back to God. You see, Jonah, Jonah wasn't willing to repent. He's not. He's not willing to repent. His heart is getting harder and harder, and he went down to the ship. And I mean, what a selfish person. The ship is breaking up. The sailors are fighting for their lives. And Jonah's like, Hey, perfect time to take a nap. But these guys are, this ship is, is capsizing. Here these guys are drowning, and Jonah's fast asleep. Listen, submerged, submerged in a sea of self-pity and self-centeredness. Now hear this. At the root of rebellion against God is a rampant selfishness that devastates and destroys the people around us. Jonah's flight from God didn't just hurt him. It put everyone around him in danger. When I sin, it hurts my kids. When I sin, it hurts my spouse. It hurts my wife. It hurts my church. My sin is not local and private and individual, even though that's exactly what the devil wants to tell you. Our sin is public and pervasive. It doesn't just hurt me. It hurts those around me. And if you're rebelling against God, it's hurting your family, and it's hurting your friends, and it's hurting your church, and it's so selfish. A son or daughter rebels against God. The parents lay awake at night weeping and praying while the son or daughter sleeps soundly in the next room oblivious to the hearts they're breaking. A wife lies in bed and anguishes over a marriage that's tearing, literally tearing apart at the seams and listens to the deep breathing of her soundly sleeping husband so unplugged in his rebellion against God. Listen, your family or friends may not be talking to you anymore because you've been so And you've been so unwilling to listen. God is not silent. And the captain of the ship had something to say. Look at verse 6. The captain approached him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. You can just imagine the heat of this moment. But these, as I said, Jonah is selfish. He's down in the bottom sleeping. 
And these guys are trying to save their lives. And he goes down there and he's like, get up, man. What are you doing? And, 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 and you know, this is, these are sailors. So I'm guessing he probably has some choice words for Jonah that are not recorded in the text. And you think about this. This is an intense moment. And Jonah's at the bottom sleeping. And maybe you're that person who's sleeping at the bottom of the boat. And people are crying out to you to wake up. Maybe you've grown cold and distant in your relationship with God. Maybe you're a believer, but you've been neglecting your spiritual health and the things in your life. And things have just gotten bad. And they've gone from bad to worse, and maybe God's sending a storm into your life. If he is loving that, why then are you running? Why, why, why are you running? Let me just say something really personally to you. If you feel like you might be that person this morning, let me just say something really God loves you so much. His love and his affection is so great for you. Every moment of every day, his heart is thinking about you. You are always on his mind. He is passionate about you as his child. God's love and affection, his care is so tender and so gracious and so kind. God is committed to you. He is loyal. He is faithful. He is a great, compassionate father toward you. So what's the coldness about? What, what's the negligence for? What, why the half-heartedness? What is that exactly? Friend, may the kindness of God lead you to repentance. May the May the warmth of God's love restore you. Well, this storm, this storm not only tells us something about the relentlessness of God, the great extent that God goes to track down self-righteous and sinful fugitives like me, but it also reveals the, the mercy of God's ways. And after all, isn't his relentlessness his mercy? His relentlessness is his mercy. The, the storm tells us something remarkable. It tells us that God responds to great sin with great mercy. Th- that's the good news. Very good news. If you just stop and think about it for a moment, that God responds to rebellion, not with rejection, but with restoration. That, that's amazing. This is an amazing aspect of the gospel. God responds to rebellion, not with rejection, but with restoration and rescue. This is, this is our God, his, the lavishness of his love. And you know, it's so hard for us to see this in Jonah. Because when we first read this, at least the first several times I read this text here in Jonah, um, you tend to think that this storm is being sent by God, um, that God is sending this storm as God's punishment to Jonah for his disobedience. That's how you tend to read this text. In other words, God is angry. God is kind of hacked off at Jonah. And, and after all, I mean, think about it. It's a violent storm. It's a great wind. It's a mighty tempest. Besides that fact, God told Jonah to go, and Jonah said, no, and he refused to do it. Jonah didn't like what God was asking him, and so he flat out refused to do it. And so God is mad. He sends a storm after Jonah as punishment for Jonah's disobedience. Now, that's typically what people think when they read this text. Typically. But if we read it that way, I think we read it wrongly. That's not what's going on here, because as you read the story, you realize that this God-sent storm was not punishment from God, but was the intervention of God. 
It was not the punishment. It was not punishment from God. It was intervention of God. It was a merciful intervention. And I just got done speaking uh, Thursday, I think, at the Friends of Sinners Banquet here in Owensboro, which is a drug and alcohol substance abuse recovery program from a Christ-centered perspective. And so this idea of intervention is, is on my mind. Interventions are for those who are in great trouble, and they don't realize it. And maybe some of you have gone through this with a family member or a friend who was addicted to alcohol or pornography or drugs or something of that magnitude. And, and that person is so deep in their addiction that they don't realize what great danger they're in. And so what happens is family members and friends get together and they do an intervention. They do an intervention to get help. That's what an intervention is. It's for those who are living in denial. It's for the purpose of saving and rescuing people who are self-destructing and unaware of it. And Jonah needs intervention. Jonah is in great danger. He thinks that his running from God will make him free, but what he doesn't realize is that his running from God actually makes him a slave. What he doesn't realize is that he's in trouble and he needs to sense this. He needs to know this. And some of us need to hear this this morning, that running from God never produces freedom. It always produces slavery. Doing things your way and not God's way never leads to freedom. It always leads to bondage and slavery. When I was a teenager and I was 18 years old, I remember thinking to myself, man, if I could just get as far away from God as possible, then I'd be free. Then I would be happy. Then I would be on my own. Then I could just live my life and get just, just you know, I don't, I just don't want this pressure in my life. These Christian parents, this church, these pastors, this, just, just God and the Bible and just, can I just get free? You know? And I thought that freedom would come that way. And graciously and thankfully at 18 years old, I realized that that freedom, that so-called freedom had really led me to slavery. And it made me a slave to desires and habits that were killing me. When God rescued me and he raised me from death to life. And, uh, and running from God, friends, does not make you free. It makes you a slave. And Jonah's quickly becoming a slave to his own evil heart. And, and he needs a wake-up call. And he needs it quick. Sometimes God's call comes in strange places, doesn't it? Sometimes people get awakened from in, in such bizarre circumstances. And here it's a pagan sailor who says, get up, man. <laughs> a pagan sailor. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this calamity has struck us. Now, I don't know about this whole lots thing, all right? We don't do that in our culture, and the last time you see it, in fact, is in Acts chapter 1. And so there's actually a bit of, um, a, a bit of cloudiness here as to, in terms of what exactly casting lots was. But, you know, the purpose of it was to isolate a person, and in this case, the purpose was to isolate who a problem person was, it was to determine kind of who's, whose fault is this. You know, why is this storm come? So they cast the lots. And Acts 1 is the last time we see this when Matthias is chosen um, as a disciple. But sometimes in the Old Testament, God would supernaturally superintend the casting of lots in order to kind of get some information on the table. And, and, and to get something out about what he wanted. And Jonah knew that. Jonah knew full well that that's what casting lots did. And would do in this circumstance. And so when it came to time for casting the lots, you can just imagine what Jonah's thinking. Let's just get this over with. I'm, I'm busted. A lot is going to fall on me. It's definitely falling on me. Can we just, we don't even need to do this, in fact. You know? And so they, they, they cast the lots, and, and he knew the lot was going to fall to him. And sure enough, the lot fell to Jonah. And think, God, but don't miss this. This is another miracle. By God, 
God was especially making sure that Jonah got the message. It's you, man. It's you, dude, that this storm is is for you, and I'm coming after you, and you are the man here. You are guilty. You are the man, and this whole storm's about you, and when are you going to submit, Jonah? So God performs this miracle, and he graciously makes sure that Jonah got the lot because God is relentless. His pursuit of him. And then in verse 8, they're like, verse 8, they're like, Jonah, we want some answers and we want them now. And that's, that's basically what's going on in verse 8. It says, it says here, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? And what is your country and, and of what people are you? And then he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and, 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 I, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And they say, what? What did you say? I'm a Hebrew. No, no, no. What's the other thing that you said? I, I, I fear the Lord God. No, 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 no. The, the last thing that you said, what was that last thing? Oh, you mean the fact that God made the sea and the dry land? Ding! That's the God we need right now. The God who made the sea. Maybe he can rescue us. That's the God we need. And so that's beginning to sink into these sailors. And you can see that in verse 10, that the men, they they become extremely frightened. Now, this is a different word than the word afraid in verse 5. This is like big time frightened. It's a superlative in Hebrew, and, and it just essentially means that they're extremely frightened. They're terrorized, we could say. And, 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 they, and, and this is such a sad part, verse 10. Then they said, verse 10, how, how could you do this? How, how could you do this? You see, these men had heard about the God of the Hebrews. They knew who God was. And what he had done for the children of Israel. And they knew that the God of Israel was a God who meant business. This is a God who didn't play around. This is a God who, who, who wiped out whole, whole armies of people. This is a God who was serious. And when they heard that this was the God of the Hebrews, that they feared Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews... They're only living 500 miles away from the promised land, and so they know full well who the God of the Hebrews is. And fear strikes them. And they knew that whatever God says is going to happen, and it does happen. And so these guys are thinking, how could you do this? What are you doing? Trying to run from your creator? What are you doing trying to run from Yahweh? I mean, and isn't it sad? Isn't it sad when an unbelieving person has more sense and integrity than a believer who's rebelling against God? This is so shocking. I mean, these, these pagan sailors are like, dude, wake up, man. You're running from your creator. Like, we're not even saved, and we know that's dumb. You know, and so these guys, this, this would be a... This would be in a, a moment where Jonah is probably the lights are coming on and Jonah's realizing this is really dumb. This is stupid. I, I don't, yeah, you're right. This is dumb. And the, the wake up is starting to happen for Jonah. And maybe this is a good time to say to some of us this morning who are running from God um, very personally, how could you do this? How, how could you do this? Did God provoke you to run? Did, did God deal with you so harshly that you had to flee? Are you tired of God? Did you find a better friend? Is somebody else out there better to serve? Is there a bigger God somewhere? Produce your strong reason for running from God. Why, why the resisting? Why the rebelling? Did God break a promise to you? Did God hurt you? No. No. God hasn't hurt you. Why don't you just bow your knee 
and tell God you're sorry. See, the men knew that he was fleeing, verse 10, from the presence of the Lord. This is interesting because he told them. Now, how messed up is that? Hey, Jonah, what are you doing? Uh, I'm running from God. Oh, right. Running from God, huh? Okay. Verse 11. And they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? (laughs) Paraphrase. Um, All right, man. What do we need to do to, to fix this storm? Because clearly you're the one. So how do we appease your God? Because we're sailors, and we don't know you, and we let you on this boat, and this thing has happened to us, and we can take care of this right now. We can throw you off off the ship. That's real easy for us to do. So what, what do we need to do to make this happen? And see, notice that the sea is becoming increasingly stormy. This is a very intentional, this is very intentional language in the Hebrew. In verse four, the sea is tempestuous. There's a mighty tempest. In verse, in verse twelve, the sea is more tempestuous. Why is this? Why is this? It's because God is turning up the heat. And why is God turning up the heat? Because God is relentless in His pursuit of us. And this is so sad. Verse twelve. This is is tragic. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah's essentially saying, look, I'd rather die than do what God's telling me to do. Jonah is so depressed and so down and so messed up from his sin that he's ready not only to just commit suicide, just throw me off, just let me go, just I'm ready to die. Now, this is what's shocking here. Why didn't Jonah say, here's what we can do. In order to stop the storm, I'll get down on my knees right now in front of you, and I will beg God for forgiveness. I will repent of my sin. I will, I will, I will, I will make restitution. I will, I, will, I will plead with God to forgive me. And you know what? If I do that, he's gracious. He's such a loving God. He'll do that for me. If he's going to save these pagan Ninevites, he'll rescue me. Jonah knows that, but instead, what does he say? Throw me off the ship. I'd rather die than obey God. I think that's a valid interpretation. I really do. I think that I I sincerely think that's how serious Jonah's sin has become. He's ready to go ahead and just end it then obey God. Now, how do you get to a place like that? How do you get to a place like that in your walk with God? From a place of loving God and worshiping God and living the life that God wants you to live to a place where you would rather die than obey God? You would rather die than do what God is asking you? How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. One decision at a time. One callous decision after the other, neglecting your own spiritual health, missing church, skipping fellowship, not praying with friends, day after day of not reading your Bible, no conversations in the home with your wife or your husband about Jesus. One week where you go to a youth camp and you fold your hands and you sit in a corner and you won't open your heart to God. One callous decision after another, then another, then another, then another, then another. And the longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back to God. And Jonah is in an awful place. And it's so hard to get back. Verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to land. You know, it kind of um, makes me kind of love these guys. They're trying to save Jonah. These pagan guys are trying to save a rebellious child of God. Wow. These pagan guys are teaching a Christian about how to be merciful. 
This is so sad. I mean, they, they, they care more about Jonah than Jonah cares about himself. They, they try to save him. And, and, and so they're rowing. They're like, let's row really hard and see if we can get back. Can you imagine being in a rowing contest with God? So what, let's row real hard, guys, and we'll, we might be able to make it back to shore, and God's got his hand on the boat, like on the front end, saying, no. No, no. He's got his finger on the boat, saying, you're not going to move the boat. Okay, it's not going anywhere because I'm God and you're human beings and you're created to serve me. And I am relentless in my pursuit of Jonah and no. And what happens with God, verse 4, there's a mighty tempest. Verse 11, the sea becomes more tempestuous. Verse 13, here's the language again, more and more tempestuous. Again, a, a very intentional device in Hebrew expressing that the storm is now becoming it's raging at this point and why does that happen and that it happens because god is turning up the heat and that's happening because god is relentless in his pursuit and that's what happens when we resist god verse 14 therefore they called out to the lord okay now just stop here they call out to yahweh that this is a tr- this is a transformation. Before they were calling out to their own gods, now they're calling out to Yahweh. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh. They called out to Adonai, O Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life. Okay, so they're clearly scared. They clearly fear Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh have done as it pleased you, so they, and that's good theology, you've done as it pleased you. You're going after Jonah, you're bringing the storm into Jonah's life is right. Jonah thinks it's wrong, they think it's right. Their theology is better than Jonah's at this point. Oh Lord, you have done as it pleased you, so they pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. So Jonah is committing suicide. He's essentially killing himself. That, that's all he knows. He doesn't have any guarantee that God's going to save him. So his sin has gotten so far that he's ready to end it. Be, be, let me just make this note here. Beware of how far your sin can take you. It's not that you're not a Christian if you commit suicide. I, I would never say that. I would say this. It's a serious sin. And it shows you how far your sin can take you. So they pick him up and they throw him into the sea. And notice this, the sea ceased from its raging. A lot fell on Jonah. Indeed, it was Jonah. It was his fault. Then the men feared Yahweh. They feared Yahweh exceedingly. Not just a little bit. They feared him exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. This may, this may be conversion. There's no way to say that, but it... We don't know that, but it could be very well conversion. All right, so verse 17 really belongs in the next chapter. So we're going to stop here at 16. Where does that leave us? Well, here's where it leaves us. Disobedience to God leads to desperation. Running from God never leads to freedom. It always leads to slavery. Always. Jonah's problem here is that he's running from God. He's self-reliant. He's trusting in his own wisdom. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't like the sound of that. You know why Jonah doesn't like the sound of that? Because he hates those Ninevites. He hates those Ninevites because, truthfully, they are the enemies of Israel. They, they, had, they, had, uh, they were very violent in, in, in their outrage against Israel and God's people. And so Jonah hates them. And Jonah knows that if he goes and he preaches, that guess what will happen? They'll actually repent. And so he knows this, and he runs from God, not because he's afraid of failure at Nineveh, not because he's afraid that if he goes to Nineveh, he might be hurt or harmed, not because he's afraid that he's going to be treated like an idiot. They're going to look at him and say, how dare you come into our city and be preaching to God? That's not why he's afraid. Jonah is afraid not because of failure in Nineveh, but because of success. Jonah doesn't want them to repent. See, Jonah's not really happy with God's call on this one. 
is really what it amounts to. He knows that God has every intention of saving his enemies. And so to, for, you, for you guys here, to use a football analogy, Jonah gets to the line of scrimmage and he calls an audible. He's like, God, I don't really like your call on this one, so I'm going to call my own play here. And he says, God, listen, typically, God, I would, you know, I would do what you say. I would deny myself. I would serve you in whatever capacity you call me to, but not this time, okay? Not, not this time. I, I don't agree with your call on this one. And, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create my own play here. And do my own thing. See, Jonah's so-called independence and freedom is leading him to slavery. Jonah's becoming a slave of his own wisdom and his own devices. Jonah doesn't trust God. He believes that his way is better. And that's not freedom for Jonah. That's slavery. And every time we sin and rebel against God, what we're saying is that my way is better than God's way. Friends, that's not freedom. That's not freedom. That's slavery. It's bondage. Freedom is when we stop depending on our own wisdom and begin trusting in God's wisdom. That's where liberation happens. The fact is God's call isn't always going to make sense to us. Sometimes we're going to look at it and say, God, I don't, I don't like that call. But if you get to a place like that, don't make Jonah's mistake. Do what Thomas Watson says, when you can't trace God's hand, trust his heart. Trust his heart. The basic lesson is this. If you want to live, you have to die to yourself. Dying to self is truly freeing and liberating. You see, in, in trusting himself over God, Jonah was in fact killing himself. And so this storm that God sent to Jonah was brought on by God's affection and not God's anger. That, that's the big paradigm for this chapter. God, this storm is brought on by God's affection, not God's anger. The storm was sent to rescue Jonah from Jonah. Jonah was in danger of being a slave to himself, and so God sends this storm with deep, divine affection to rescue Jonah from Jonah. Isn't this awesome? The storm was God's way of keeping Jonah from destroying himself. It was, the, it was a means of losing, of loosing Jonah's chains of self-dependence. And so it begs the question, has that happened to you? Has God loosed the chains of your self-dependence? Has God saved you from you? What God-sent storms are going on in your life? that are intended to rescue you from yourself? You know, only you can really answer that question. But this part of the story tells us something great about the gospel. The gospel is the great news that God is the great freer of slaves. The gospel is the great news that God has come in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from ourselves. The human heart, as Calvin says, is an idol-making factory and we know this, that the primary idol that we all worship is ourselves. Self-autonomy, it's all about me. And the good news of the gospel is this, that in Christ, God came to set me free from me. The good news of the gospel is that even though our slavery reaches far, God's rescuing grace reaches farther. He has the key to unlock our chains and set us free. That's why we can sing the great words of Charles Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's liberation. And I know there's a whole bunch of you that have been liberated. And I know there's a whole bunch of you that are excited about the fact that you've been liberated. You guys are free. I'm announcing freedom to a bunch of freed slaves. You are freed former slaves. Do you, do you understand your position in Christ this morning? You have been freed. 
You have been rescued from yourself. You are no longer in bondage to yourself. You no longer have to live life feeling the burden of your own sin and your own and your own depravity. You no longer have to live just saying, man, I'm just, I'm just such a bad sinner. I just can't seem to get over these sins. No, you're free from that. That's not your slave master anymore. Jesus is your master. You are free. Live free. Rejoice in your freedom. Proclaim your freedom. This is who God has made us. And for Jonah's sake, this is so awesome. God would not let Jonah win. The hound of heaven tracked him down. For Jonah's sake, God took him down. And that's why I love what Charles Spurgeon said. God will never allow his children to sin What great news that God's mercy is large, so large, in fact, that God never lets his children sin successfully. And Jonah's proof of that, Hebrews 12, 6 says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. When the rod of God's discipline comes, friends, kiss it, kiss it. Kiss the rod of God's discipline. You see the love of God through the storms that he brings into your life. It's it's for your good. It's for my good. When God comes with his surgical knife to cut the cancer of sin away, let him cut. It hurts now, but it will lead to freedom. Well, Here's, here's where I end. See, what this story tells us then, friends, is this. Is that behind every storm in a Christian's life is a Savior. Storms are merciful. And Jesus, in, in the ultimate sense, is God's storm. Jesus is God's intervention for people like you and me who are enslaved to ourselves. So just as the storm was meant to rescue Jonah... From Jonah, so Jesus was sent to rescue you from you. In Christ, God came not to strip away your freedom, but to strip away your slavery to self so that you can be truly free. Holy Spirit, I just pray now that you would just come and do a thousand things that I cannot do. With a, with a small sermon and work in people's hearts for your glory in Jesus' name.